You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And today I'm here with Sally Augustine, who is the founder of Design with Science and has also worked at UC Berkeley in the Healthy Workplace Initiative and also is the author of this is your most recent book. It's called uh, Designology. It's a little bit of a departure from, I think, your previous work, which is very much targeting more of an academic audience. You have Doing Design Research, and then you have this other book called Place Coach. So welcome, Sally. Well, it's nice to be with you. Yeah, my new book is a little different than the previous books because in Place Advantage and in Doing Design Research, I was writing more for a designer public, and it seemed like such a waste that the general public didn't know about the sorts of studies that people have done that relate to the spaces where we spend our lives. So in designology, I tried to take some of the information that I'd been sharing with architects, interior designers, industrial designers, and things like that for years, and put it in a form that anybody could read. No special training required. Well, increasingly, people are honing up on these sorts of things so that they can interrogate the experts that they hire a little more intelligently and work more collaboratively with those people, both in you know financial advising and in medicine and in interior design, architecture, contracting even. I've been working on my house. It was great to see that you built a house up from, from the studs. I feel kind of like that's what I've been doing for the last two years of my life. And I've learned quite a bit about contracting and design and so forth. Yeah, yeah. It's quite an expensive endeavor when you're doing significant work on your home. So people are interested in making good decisions and Googling around, more and more people are learning that my field exists. And once people learn my field exists, many, many people get confidence applying the material I talk about because it's all based in in science. I'm a member of the American Psychological Association. As a matter of fact, I'm a fellow of the APA, and we're at the APA really interested in rigorously conducted research that does things like follows the scientific method, where material is appropriately analyzed statistically, and then reasonable conclusions are are drawn. And when you follow that paradigm, you find that you have information that people can apply with confidence. You don't have to think about nebulous topics like taste or (laughs) when you're you're doing your homework. It frees you from having to do what your sister-in-law, who has a pretty nice place, you know, what she's telling you to do. You know, you can base your decisions in science. Yeah, and this science is environmental psychology. Could you tell us a little bit about this field as as a discipline? You know, some people might just say, oh, you're just trying to turn art into science. How dare you? But it's clear that our space has a huge impact on our psyche and our mental health and our physical health. When I had you come and speak to my class, I was teaching a course on the future of work, and it was really more kind of HR people, people ops people who are, you know, super interested in in making sure they got the most productivity out of their employees, that they, you know, attracted and retained the best people and, and they thought that the physical environment could impact those metrics. And also just employee well being and wellness was something that a lot of right. employers were concerned about. And so it was in the context of that that I brought you in. And now of course 
people are, are working from home. And so the convergence of your discussion here about the home and uh, what you've been doing in the workplace is very real right now. So we'll get into those topics, but I, I want to start off by just asking you, what is the origins of environmental psychology? Where did it come from? Because it is very interdisciplinary. You work with architects, you work with interior designers, you work with psychologists, you work with human productivity experts. Where did it come from? How did it originate? Well, I think that the first time somebody put a, a space to live together where they wanted to feel comfortable, they started to think about the kinds of topics that are relevant to environmental psychology. I think the first time somebody set up a, a little stand beside a path somewhere to sell something, they were interested in how the space that they put together would influence sales, all that kind of thing. So I think people have actually been thinking about how the physical environment influences how humans think and behave since there have been human beings. But as a field, environmental psych started to get going in the 50s. It was really roaring along by the 60s. And in the 50s and 60s, we were called architectural psychologists, which was actually a pretty good name for what we did, thinking about how aspects of the physical environment influence what goes on in mm -hmm. people's heads. And then in the 70s or so, people realized that environmental psychology was being applied not just to design places, but also to design objects. So then the people in the architectural psych world decided they needed a new name. So they called themselves environmental psychologists, which has led to a lot of confusion in future years because classic environmental psychologists, such as myself, we aren't into conserving the physical environment, etc., you know, any more than many, many others are. So I can actually tell when people pay attention to what I say I do. Like if I'm at a party or something, remember when we go to parties a long time ago? But if I'm at a party and someone asks me what I do, and if I tell them, if after I'm, I'm done explaining what I do, they say something like, so is it really important to sort the green glass from the blue glass or whatever? I know they haven't really paid much attention to what I have to say. They've just heard environmental psych and turned off. But, you know, we've been a field for a long time. We've been a division, which means we're a recognized professional group. We've been a division of the American Psychological Association since the 70s. The Environmental Design Research Association started in, I think it was 1969. So, um, you know, we've been going strong since then, but people have always been concerned about where they live, how they live, etc. Yeah, I remember, I think I was first exposed to it. I was studying architectural history and my professor would talk about the intention of the architects in terms of how they were trying to shape and sculpt the subjective experience of the people in, in the space. And then, and then I remember encountering this work back in the 80s, I think, which introduced the concept of prospect and, and refuge. Yes! <laughs> that was sort of a seminal moment when I remember seeing that, and then it tied together the architecture with the kind of biology so a lot of what you do is really about humans as organisms and kind of the environment that we are more or less used to living in and threats and stress and so forth. And so maybe let's start by going into that topic. What is it that people are wanting from an environment? You know, they want safety, they want energy, they want relaxation. Well, I think humans today like to think we're really very different from our ancestors from eons, you know, millennia ago. But, you know, really we're not so much. I hate to break it to anybody out there who was thinking they made such progress, but our sensory systems are very much the same today as they were when we were just starting to develop tools and things like that. So if you think about like a chipmunk, for example, and think about what a chipmunk 
wants from a space. That's really not so different than what a modern human is attuned to wanting from a space because a chipmunk is a relatively social animal, like people are. So that chipmunk wants to be able to interact with others of its kind when it chooses to do so. But it's very concerned about its safety because a chipmunk really doesn't have much going for it safety-wise besides staying alert and keep it moving. And when we were a young species, that's how we survived also. So that's why we're really interested in things like prospect and refuge, like you talk about. That really means having a view out over the world around you from a place where you feel secure and comfortable. Like if you imagine somebody sitting in a tree looking out around their world, that's a space with prospect and refuge. If you're in a cave high on a hill looking out of the world around you, you have prospect and refuge. So today you have prospect and refuge when you're sitting in a a high-backed chair, for example, in a public space, when you're sitting against a wall in any sort of environment where basically you don't have to think about something approaching you from the rear, you have a secure view over the world around you and, and you can feel really comfortable at a fundamental level. And Our sensory systems from many, many generations ago actually are why we're so concerned about clutter today in the environments that surround ourselves. Because one of the things we you know, had to do all the time when we were a young species was we had to continually look around the world in which we found ourselves to make sure that nothing who thought we were tasty was approaching. And we still are always surveying the world around us. We don't think about the fact that we're doing that all the time, but in reality, your eyes are always moving. You're always looking around. And when your environment is visually cluttered, all that looking around takes a lot more effort. It's a lot harder. It makes you feel stressed. So it's like just cognitive load? Visual load, but visual load matters because it leads to cognitive load, as you're talking about. You have to curate the environment in which you find yourself, particularly in this time when we're not really going anywhere besides, you know, from one space in our house to another space in our house. So you really have to think about what's surrounding you. But just as you don't want an environment that takes a lot of effort to scan, that really increases your cognitive load. You also don't want a space that's too stark. That really freaks us out too. That isn't where our sensory systems develop. They didn't come into being in a white box with one chair in it, etc. So we really are best, from a psychological perspective, in a space that has moderate visual complexity. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of formulas and stuff you can use to determine if a space has moderate visual complexity, but... Really, nobody uses them once they're done with their dissertation and, you know, get the big sign off from their committee. You know, they stop thinking about those formulas. And visual complexity has to do with number of colors and shapes and if there's some sort of order in how these colors and shapes seem to come together. And so what people do in the real world to think about visual complexity is they come up with something that they can compare to, because this is something that humans can readily do. And it might sound not very reasonable or plausible when I say it, but, you know, anybody who's skeptical should try out what I'm about to say. As it turns out, residential environments developed by Frank Lloyd Wright generally have moderate visual complexity. So if you go online and Google Taliesin or Robbie House or whatever, and look at some of those pictures, then look at the world around you 
you can very readily make a comparison between what you see in the world around you and those pictures of Frank Lloyd Wright interiors. And that gives you an idea because you want to keep in your world the things that are actually meaningful to you, the things that send messages to you that you value. So you have to be reviewing the contents of your home to see what does and what doesn't. Like I have a friend who's starting to gear her home up to be retired, and she actually has these five books that are big picture books that relate to music. She's quite the opera fan. And I was on the phone with her recently, and she was lamenting the fact that she was going to have to get rid of these books. So I said, Sheila, how much space do these books take up? And she said, oh, there's five of them. And she described how big they were. And it's like, Sheila, you have room for that in your apartment. And these are meaningful to you. You don't have to get rid of everything in in your life just because you're sort of starting to move towards retirement. When she thought about it, and we talked a little while, she realized that she did get joy out of having these books. She did enjoy flipping through them. But it's beyond just joy. I want to make the point that the stuff that you really value sends messages to you about what you think of yourself as a person. Like my friend sees herself as very interested in opera. You could see yourself as interested in in sailing, or you could be really into your family life or something like that. And so you need to keep around you the stuff that sends these messages to you about what you value about yourself. And if it turns out that when you keep these things and you compare your environment to one of those Frank Lloyd Wright interiors, you sort of come up a little jam-packed, if you will, you can always rotate things in your life. If you have a windowsill that has 40 photographs on it now in frames, unless... You can get the digital frame, which has the pictures, you know, rotating through the digital frame. Yeah, but you can do that in the flesh too, in real life. 40 pictures is probably too much for any windowsill I can really imagine, but put all but five in a box. And, you know, once a month, like say on the day of your birthday, like I was born on the 13th of the month. So every month on the 13th, for example, I could go into my box of photos and rotate some new ones up onto that windowsill, take the ones on the windowsill down, put them in the box. And if after a year you find there's some photos in that box that you've never rotated onto the windowsill, maybe it's time to take them out of their frames where they take up more room and sort of tuck them into like a, an album. And don't rush to throw things away or to donate things or whatever. Give yourself a chance with the things that seem to send important signals to you, like old food containers, Vogue magazines from 1982. Odds are those are not things that you have great personal connection to. They're not saying something to you about something that's meaningful to you, unless you took the cover photo on that issue of Vogue in 1982. Mm -hmm. Then it probably does say something to you. Then you probably should keep it. But get rid of the stuff, recycle it, whatever. If you can't remember why you have it, that kind of thing, and rotate the other stuff around. You can always donate it and all in a little while, but don't be quick to get rid of it because you definitely can't get it back. I was fortunate enough to live in a Frank Lloyd Wright house for a couple of years. I know what you're, you're describing. My challenge is that I have too many books and I don't know where to put I have stacks of boxes of books everywhere, which creates a lot of clutter. It's interesting because when you have books, like I have hundreds of books around me, when they're in mm-hmm. bookshelves, they actually, in your mind, they become almost like a painting. 
mm-hmm. in terms of how you deal with them. So you know, if you can order them by getting them into bookshelves, that'll keep a few more of them. But stacked on tables and stuff like that. Yes, if I could rotate my camera, you'd be horrified. <laughs> but what I find interesting about this whole discipline and one of the things that popped up in the future of work class I was teaching is that most people don't really understand what all the causes are of different things, whether we're talking about our moods, whether we're talking about our productivity, whether we're talking about our creativity. You know, we tend to assign causality to things that are very obvious, but not things that might be sort of in the background. And so employers are, are kind of experimenting with these different interventions. And when we think about, say, the open plan office. We love to talk about that as environmental psychologists. <laughs> yes. And so my understanding is this was not originally created in order to foster innovation and interaction, although that is kind of one of the potential benefits. It was designed more as a cost-cutting measure. And now we're seeing sort of a shift away from the open plan office. I would expect now with post-COVID, we'll probably see a very, very different mix between open and, and closed plan offices. Tell us about what you've learned about open plan offices, in particular, the impact on our moods and our productivity. Well, open plan offices are really something that has drifted very far from the original plan. Originally, it, it was thought that people might work on one floor, like in the 60s, you know, when Bureau Landschaft, which was the original name for open plan offices when that was developed, was thought people might work on one floor of a building. There might not be too many walls between the people working. The Herman Miller cubicles originally were much larger, right? Right. Originally, the spaces were much, much larger even than, than a cubicle. You wouldn't necessarily even think of it as a cubicle. And there were large plants and other things dividing up the space. So that was the original plan. And That might have done okay from many perspectives, but very quickly things started to change. You know, real estate is expensive. People were placed closer, closer, closer. There was a workspace professional who was working about 15 years ago named Michael Brill, and he used to joke that he wondered when cannibalism was going to set in as people were getting moved closer, closer, closer. But when we're in an open space as open plan offices developed and as many of the solutions like benching solutions were used at one time there are tons of distractions okay that's bad but what was really killing people's spirit was their lack of control over what happened to them in the physical environment they'd be trying to focus someone would be talking about a party in the next cubicle just on the other side of the wall the short wall or they'd be somebody burning something in the microwave just ahead that was distracting. You know, you had to figure out if it was like just Tom burning his lunch again or if the building was on fire. All these things, you know, were just distracting people. And that wasn't good, but they had nowhere to go. They had no control. You still do hear from place to place like, oh, I'm going to stay home tomorrow to work because I have to get something done, which is a real condemnation of the open workplace. Or people were going into the bathrooms, weren't they? Yes, I was going to talk about that next because I find that really intriguing. You know, we also, as the kind of animals we are, we need time out of the view of the others of our type every so often, visually and acoustically out of range, in order to make sense of what's going on in our life and things like that. We have a fundamental need for privacy. It's a little different from being distraction-free in these really open spaces, there was no place for people to go, except for sometimes you find people in their cars at lunch, 
pretending to be asleep in their car in the parking lot. Other people were going into the restrooms, into the stalls in the in the restrooms, because at least there they had some visual privacy. And also, we don't tend to talk to people who are in the restroom in our society. So you had some privacy, and, and people realized that they could also work without distraction in the bathroom. So then you had all these people who were, first they were bringing like their phones into the bathroom, you know, because you can do so much on the phone. And then it, it turns out there were lots of people who were bringing their whole laptop into the stall, which really begs the question, you know, should you change the world out there from whence people came or should you just make the bathroom stall a better place to work, you know, like put in a better surface or whatever. But the world is moving on from these totally open places. And now there's a lot of attention to something called activity-based working, which is providing a range of different areas in, like on the floor of a building. So, you know, if this is done correctly, people can travel from one area to another to do various sorts of work. And, you know, this isn't so good from a memory perspective because every time you have to relocate, Mm -hmm. you sort of lose a little bit of what you were trying to remember. But it is better to be able to go into a quiet space when you have to be able to focus. And in order to really be used effectively, culture has to align with these activity-based workplaces as well. Because if you provide a place with some acoustic shielding in a work environment, but the culture or the way people are interacting with each other in the workplace indicates that like only wimps have to go into the quiet room to work, whatever, then people won't use it. So it's all developed in vain. So, you know, culture has to allow the use of these spaces, you know, support the use of these spaces. And also the spaces have to really be realistically designed. I don't see what I'm about to tell you so much anymore but it does still come up every so often. And there's some places that are still out there where people have thought about creating activity-based workplaces, but they've sort of been fooling themselves. Like I remember a space where people developed like a quiet zone and they just separated it from a huge high traffic area with some cloth curtains. That really wasn't creating a quiet zone, you know, except on the floor plan, there was a space labeled quiet zone, but people couldn't really focus there. Or I was at one place where glass cubes were created for people to work in, but the glass was, you know, tempered or whatever, so it wouldn't shatter on on contact. It was safe, but it was just one sheet of bigger old glass. So really what you created was tiny glass rooms that were incredibly hot because of the way the HVAC worked and Mm -hmm. where things and sounds echoed around in this really weird way. When you're creating an activity-based workplace, you have to be realistic. Give people truly, actually quiet places to use. Give people spaces where they can mingle with their colleagues and perhaps develop joint solutions to problems. Create spaces that actually support what you want people to to do there. If you have to spend too much time thinking about how a solution can actually serve its purpose, the intended purpose, probably that's really not the solution, design solution you should be going with. So in addition addition to sort of visual distraction and auditory distraction and the sort of sense of underlying threat that you 
receive from continual observation. And yeah, we could talk about that too. It has a big effect on people's behaviors and they do things like they stop doing any behaviors that people might misinterpret when they're walking by people who don't hear the conversation in the room. They just see what's going on in one of those glass cubes, you know, and people start to feel like animals on display and lots of zoo animals are not too happy. Right. Even cockroaches, apparently, (laughs) their performance is impaired under observational treatments. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I care about this stuff because I would like people to be happy and not Mm -hmm. like an ogre. And I would like people to be in a good mood, not just because I like to think of myself as an okay person, but also because when you're in a more positive mood, you think more broadly, you're better at problem solving, you think more creatively, you get along better with other people, all that kind of thing, all of which is really desirable for living modern life or working with with other people. So even if an organization doesn't at one level care about its employees, they should want them to be in a relatively good mood because all sorts of good things for the organization flow out of being in a relatively positive mood. You've also talked a lot about biophilia, right? And how we have sort of a some innate kind of comfort level with nature. And you mentioned wood grains and greens and so forth. But going back to our little uh, chipmunk, I mean, isn't nature kind of bloody in tooth and claw? And, you know, you, we want to burrow into our little hole and get away from nature. So, uh, yeah, it actually is very bloody. And the good old days really weren't so good for many. <laughs> So that makes us really attentive to our world, not only in terms of prospect and refuge, but we also have to take the opportunities that we can to relax and refresh, sort of, you might think of it, so we're ready to go to battle again, if you will. So that's why things like the fact that wood grain, looking at wood when you can see the grain, actually is really a great thing for cutting your stress levels, and so this would help you concentrate more effectively at work and all sorts of things like that. And if you think back to the primitive animal thing, you know, you needed to have downtime every so often, downtime where you felt more comfortable, relaxed, etc. So you could go back out there and kill the whatever that you needed in order to survive. You know, we can think about the sort of spaces where we were really comfortable when we were a young species. And we find that we're still very comfortable in them today. The wood grain is interesting. It's also interesting that nature sounds, these are the sounds that you would hear in a meadow on a lovely spring day. Well, they're very refreshing to us and also help us keep our stress levels in check. So that's things like hearing like a burbling brook or gently rustling leaves and all that. That does great things for what is on in our mind. And that's an aspect of biophilic design. And you can get those sorts of sounds easily on the web now. There's other really interesting similarities or experiences that seem deeply buried in the sort of fundamentals of how our brains work. Like, no matter where you'd go in the world today, if you ask people what their favorite color is, they're more likely to tell you that it's blue, a shade of blue, than any other color. And it seems that our visual system has a particular soft spot, if you will, for processing the color blue. This makes sense because 
when we didn't have all the tools and things that we have today, we would have gotten a big psychological charge from seeing the color blue because blue is like the color of the sky on a lovely day. It's also the color of a waterhole seen from a distance usually. If you're thinking of putting your house on the market and you're going to need to paint, paint the interiors different shades of blue. And the color that you really want to avoid if you're thinking of putting your house in the market is, we could think of it as a yellowish yellow green. That's what my house used to be painted in. It's a very popular color in the 20s and 30s and 40s, apparently. Oh, yeah. Well, I also think it's a color that we see today, but it really started out as a different shade. Like maybe it was just Mm -hmm. sort of like an off-white 40 years ago when it went on the walls and it's been sort of corrupted because of cigarette smoking in the area or whatever over time. But yellow, yellow, green is the color that universally people like the least. We react negatively to that color. So if you've got any of that color in your house, if you want to make the best price possible when you put your house on the market, get rid of it. So just sticking with the employment environment context, it seems like Color matters, sound matters, light matters. And each of these things I've spent time on in my class, but it doesn't seem as if there's really any one person or entity that's responsible for all of these different things. So, you know, maybe you have some facilities people and they're they're basically just focusing on on cost. And then you've got some, you know, interior people and then you have the architects people and the procurement people. And yet if the entire integrated environment is so important, why do you suppose that organizations don't put a lot of emphasis on that or have kind of an integrated approach to workplace design? It's hard, which is the reason why people don't pay a lot of attention to integrating these different features of the physical world. But there are people around like me who are working on developing systems that people can use that integrate a variety of physical experiences so that people out there who haven't gone on and gotten PhDs, whatever, can use this material in practice. And that is something that I'm spending more and more time on, which is, you know, integrating sensory experiences. And it turns out things work much as you might think from a common sense perspective. And this is being spoken about more and more at the sort of professional conferences that I attend. And also I'm getting asked more and more about it in the great world out there because you can talk to people about color and of on surfaces or color of light or how many decibels exactly whatever they're listening to should be being played at and all that but there's always one sharp cookie who at the end of a monologue about what to do about the color of the light or the intensity of the light or whatever they say but you know <laughs> and that but almost always has to do with the fact that we have many sensory systems that are working at the same time, whose inputs we have to integrate. But we are finding that the stuff does add together in our heads. We tend to favor certain sorts of senses at other times. We get good results when the sorts of experiences that people are having generally put them in the same mood. That will amplify whatever mood is being generated. And when you get some sensory experiences that are putting people in one sort of mood and others that are putting them in a separate set of mood, then there's sort of like a dissonance in people's heads and, and that results in discomfort and things like that. But if things are consistent in terms of like if you pair 
like a relaxing wall color with relaxing light color with a relaxing sound, you will create a relaxing environment. And we're learning what's relaxing in, in different situations. And we're learning how things work together in our heads so that we can come up with these overall solutions. Yeah, people used to spend about half their time at work and half their time at home, and now they're spending all their time at home. Yes. And so it's timely that you turn your attention to the domestic environment. And I think in half your book, the first half you talk about stuff that applies to everybody, and then later you kind of try to drill into you know what might be more particular for different types of people. So some of the things that you said about the designing a perfect home are very similar to what you talk about in designing the workplace, which is kind of having having zones for different types of activities and optimizing the design of the space for the intended activity, bedrooms and entertainment spaces and refuges and so forth. Right. Just as we're not very different from a chipmunk, we don't magically transform from one sort of beast to another when we go from like the living room or wherever we like to mingle with our friends to the room where we work out to the place where we sleep, you know, the same sorts of colors influence us in the same way sounds you know and we really should never ignore any of our sensory channels we tend to think about vision in our world i think because we're used to looking at photographs or videos which a video might have a sound component but we're used to by rote thinking about what something looks like but all of our sensory systems well for most of us happily we have multiple sensory systems working in one time so you have to think about the things like, you know, we use vision generally to assess how functional something is, and we can assess something visually from a great distance, as long as you know, our eyesight holds up. But like smell has a really important effect on our emotional experience, and generally we have to be really close up for smell. So you, know, you have to think about the range of experiences you'll have in space. You also have to think about things like a floor will look like something but it also will affect the sound in a space. You know, if you imagine somebody walking across marble, that's very different than somebody walking across a carpeted surface. So you can't leave out any of these sensory experiences. And I don't tend to think about taste so much, but it is also true that physical forms, restaurants where people eat, as well as like the cutlery that they use, etc., influence how tastes are perceived as well. So this is true for all of our sensory systems. So I want to talk about a little bit about the research because it seems like such a, a huge topic. We spend all of our time in one place or another. And yet there's been surprisingly small amount of kind of large scale field experiments in, in this discipline. I mean, I know companies like Google are doing more kind of A-B testing around environments. But if you look at all the studies that have been done, for instance, on observational studies on what people eat, we know that if you have an olive oil diet versus a lard diet, you know, we kind of have some pretty good understanding. I mean, and these are large scale data sets, right? And yes, there are compounds. Yes, there are some variables that you have to worry about and so forth. But we've done experiments where we do dietary interventions and then we track people over long periods of time. Why haven't we studied kind of the, the physical environment in quite that way? I mean, most of the things you're describing, the reason why we know what we do know typically comes from lab experiments, kind of survey data, like relatively small-scale studies? I think that you have to keep several different things in mind. First of all, it can be really tremendously expensive to change the 
physical environment, which can affect research. Can we just do a survey? Like, I know there was a survey that was done in in England where they coded the postal codes for aesthetic beauty, right? <laughs> and then they looked to see if it correlated with lifespan and so forth. But what if we could ask people, you know, hey, what color is your wall? And then just see, are there any differences in health outcomes? And studies like that do get done. Sometimes an issue also is the fact that sometimes the terms that scientists have used over the years have made it difficult to delve into this research if, if you're not a professional in the field. Another point I want to make is, as you point out, there are lots of people out there doing research. Major firms are tweaking this or that in, in their workplace. And oftentimes, those findings don't necessarily immediately become public knowledge because an organization has paid to have particular research done and they retain proprietary knowledge of that of the findings for a period of time. So this happens particularly in the retail world and in the healthcare world. Retail, it's really easy to see the implications of changes you make to a space. You know, like you sell more or you sell less. Or maybe you sell the same. Isn't that how you got started? Yeah, I got started in the, in the retail world. But our healthcare, people take more pain medicine or they take less pain medicine or they get out of the hospital like two days sooner. If you do this to their room or if you do this other thing to their room, maybe they go home three days later. And in workplaces, there's been some challenges in terms of coming up with measures of performance, particularly in knowledge workplaces where people are doing things like coming up with new advertising slogans or something. Sometimes it's hard to know the influence of the physical environment on something like that. But more people are thinking more rigorously about things that can be managed or counted in a space to determine the outcomes of design on performance. For example, as it turns out, studies that are totally independent of the workplace design world have found that patents that are actually more creative, have more creative core to them, are referenced more than other patents in the future. So as people are starting to think about things like, you don't want to just count the number of patents that are issued in this work environment versus that work environment, because how do you know like whether people are patenting like stupid stuff, like everything I can think of, you can make a billion dollars. So I was going to say like a new kind of shoelace, but maybe that would be like a great thing to patent, whatever. But you know, like, how do you know? how creative these new patents are. Just because a patent is issued doesn't mean it was like an earth-shattering idea. But if you look down the line a little bit, percentage of patents and how many references they get in, you know, future patents, you start to see an idea about creativity, performance in different spaces. I remember the Hawthorne experiments, and I got exposed to them back when I was in business school, like at the very beginning. And of course, you know, that experiment turned out to be very poorly designed and misunderstood and everything. So it was kind of shuffled away and dismissed as as sort of a nice folktale about management and so forth. It's that kind of thing that makes me concerned about asking people too many direct survey questions. You need to get mm-hmm. a little more sophisticated in the survey questions you, you ask people. You can't ask them what they like necessarily or where they think they do a, a good job because these can be impossible questions for people to answer. And I think you have to get more creative about how data are gathered in workplaces and 
people are getting more creative about data that are gathered in workplaces. And that gives us a better understanding of the true implications of the space. You know, also the thing with surveys is the way some of them were written. It was pretty easy to game the survey. If you thought about it, like if you were asked questions, you might think about things such as, if I answer these questions in one way, they'll take away my office. I like my office. If I answer these questions in another way, I'll get to keep my office. I like my office. Well, one of the things you mentioned in the book is about territorialism and, and how everyone needs to have their own little space in a house. And I was, I was wondering if you could do a study on divorce rates and see. Yeah. Yeah. The observational studies would be tough, though, because if people get along better when they have separate spaces, but stop getting along, they go and seek separate spaces, you know, it'd be hard to, we'd need to do some kind of RCT. That's why you have to be a little more sophisticated about it and have to come up. You have to just think it through and do whatever you can to deal with the situations that are available to you for research. But often, if you just like sit back and you just think like, what data could I possibly gather about this space? Sometimes if you go like in an organization and find somebody, this person is often in the accounting department, by the way, and you ask them like, what do you people keep track of now? And after they tell you one thing, you just keep asking like in a nice way, anything else, anything else? And you find something that gives you a good indication of how well a space performs. Like there was a famous study done maybe 20 years ago now. A group was redeveloping a work environment with the idea of improving collaborative performance. And they were at a firm that kept track of how many hours were allocated to project phases. And they kept track of this because it all eventually led into billing. So this organization for forever had been keeping track of how many hours were spent on different project phases. So they had this information from before anything changed and they had this information after the change and the organization knew that some project phases were more collaboration intense than others we can do that very easily now with we can look at email records we can look at jira we can look at gps and inside the office and so forth often if you just spend a minute thinking about what data an organization is already collecting you come up with something that is handy for assessing the performance of a space. So last question. The bulk of this book is actually devoted to how different personality types might have different needs and how the environment can be optimized for those different personality types. I had trouble figuring out what my personality type was. I identified with all of them. But this idea of customization is so important particularly in the workplace, right? Where people, if they have the ability to control the temperature, if they have the ability to control their cubicle, if they have the ability to control like what they see and what they hear, it's hugely beneficial. That's what I was getting at about in the open environment and when people lost control, it was mentally devastating. So if if an individual is doing a rethink of their workspace or their home space, if if they're trying to figure out, okay, how can I get the biggest bang for my buck scanning my environment and making some interventions to improve my productivity and my psychological wellness, where would I start? I mean, apart from reading the book. The first thing you really need to do is curate your visual environment to get your cognitive load down, as you were talking about. And there are other things that are really primordial in us as animals that everybody should be thinking of. And these are things like 
let as much natural light as possible into your workplace, rooms in your home, etc. Try to minimize window treatments, keep them open if you can. You can't freeze to death or whatever. You know, you have to use some logic with all of this. Think about things such as ventilation directly, but also think about plants. They can, to some extent, help with the cleanliness of your environment, but no matter whether you're talking about a home, a workplace, or, you know, any room in your home. And this is an aspect of biophilic design. Can I just use a picture of a plant or maybe a plastic plant? Yeah, you actually can. And you can even use a fake plant, as long as it's a good fake plant. It's for like five hours, enumerate what makes a fake plant a good fake plant. But in the end, you actually know. We're always talking here about green leafy plants, not like cactuses, unfortunately. So if you have to reach out and touch a plant to see if it's real or not, probably it's great for you from a mental perspective. So daylight, plants, clutter, these are you know some of the very basic aspects of our physical experience that are relevant no matter where you are. Maybe we can get together sometime in the future and talk about like how things that surface colors come into play, like light color and intensity also matters as well. There are a number of issues, but you know, if you can deal with the visual load, getting daylight, daylight's sort of like a, almost like a magic drug for us and plants into a space. And if you can't, deal with the fake plant either if you have pictures of nature screensavers you know you can print pictures these don't have to be monumental works of art but if you go online see a meadow photo print it out and put it on your wall because all that will be help you with mental refreshment and keeping your stress levels in check never violate copyright though don't think I'm saying that. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I always wonder how much people even notice now, right? If you spend all your time on your device, if you spend all your time on your computer, if you spend all your time on the screen, how much do you actually pick up in, in the surrounding environment? Sometimes I visit people's homes and I, the only explanation I have for their home design is that they must just be on the phone all the time and they don't notice. Well, I think sometimes something that happens to people is they see something on TV, they see something in somebody's house. Then they come home and try to replicate it, and they don't remember necessarily all the details. It doesn't go so well. There's something structurally about their house that stands in the way. There's a financial budget, whatever, and then things start to go bad for people. But if you're true to yourself, think about spaces where you've been happy in the past. That puts you on the right path to good spaces in your home and your workplace now. Well, Sally... Thanks so much for joining me today. Hopefully, we'll get you back out to the Bay Area sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully. Now that the weather out here is super nice, we'll get you out here. So, Designology, check it out. Maybe you can rework your home and then tackle your workspace. Thanks so much, Sally. Thank you for having me. And I hope you have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.